Lord, in this room, we are quite literally uh, surrounded by our needs and requests as we've written things on candles that represent some of our deepest requests to you. And so we take a moment now and we, we ask that you do immeasurably more than what we could ask or imagine. Just glancing at what has been written, I saw requests for children, for marriages, for courage and clarity in very difficult circumstances. Requests for freedom of various kinds, from finances, from very difficult relationships, from oppressive circumstances. Requests for healing of bodies and emotions and spirits who are deeply wounded. And so as we make these requests to you, we trust that you care about these things just as much as we do and even more. And so we think of Paul's words and we ask that you would help us to not be anxious about anything. That you would remind us to present our requests to you, God, in every situation by asking and by praying and even by giving thanks. And then we ask that even as our requests have been made, even as we still wait for them to be answered, even as we still hope that the God who has done great things before will do great things again, even in the midst of that, we ask that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we recognize this gift of peace as one of the ways you reveal yourself to us. And we long for it. We are ready for it. And we ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your gift of peace even as we wait. We ask all of these things with hope and with expectation because we trust you, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, If you go to the middle, you'll find the Psalms, and then you just go to the left a little bit. You'll find Nehemiah. My name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here at the 8th Street Church. And one of the reasons, one of the many, many reasons I'm here is because we gather around this very ancient text, which uh, which has purpose for us in this day and gives us hope. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, if you would turn to Nehemiah, and if you don't have a Bible, I have some friends who have Bibles, and they'd love to lend you a Bible or give you one. You can just raise your hand. Somebody will give you a Bible. We need one right up here. We have some Bibles in Spanish, so if your heart language is in Spanish, or uh, if you're just practicing your Spanish, uh, you can just ask for a Spanish Bible. That would be great as well. But I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. 
And at our church, we stand as we honor the reading of God's word. So I invite you to do that even, even right now. So hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah chapter 8. It says this, In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Look at verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people, and when they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen, Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Look at verse 8. Then they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people to understand each passage. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drink, and share the gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have heard that when a natural disaster wipes out an area, there are two things that need to happen. The first thing is, is that a city sends in law enforcement to prevent crime. They don't want violence or looters and the second thing they do is they put up street signs. I have a picture of Moore, Oklahoma, when the tornado came through just a few years ago. It doesn't matter, they say, how long you've lived in an area. When a natural disaster like what happened in Moore happens, you cannot tell where you are. All the landmarks that ha help you establish location are gone. Tornadoes can do this. Tsunamis, hurricanes... And battles. In a battle, everything is burned and there is nothing left. And this is what Jerusalem looked like after the Babylonians wiped them out in 605 BC, about 610 years before Jesus. It had been destroyed. Jerusalem was unrecognizable. And after years and years and years in an exile, the Jewish children, the people of God, were finally, finally, finally allowed to return to their homeland. So the scriptures tell us that there were three leaders, God's men, who went about the business of rebuilding this and restoring the city because it was in this kind of shape. First, there was a governor of a Persian province, and his name was Zerubbabel. 
and he led a group of Jews, about 43,000 back home, and uh, his was the assignment to put together a team to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed when the Babylonians came and burned it down. The temple is the center of worship, and it's the center of religious identity, and the Babylonians destroyed it during their invasion in 586. It was a very simple temple, but about the time of Jesus, King Herod, who you read about during Christmas, added to this temple and made it the glorious site uh, that you see in this picture. Then in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed Herod's temple. But we're here during this time, around 586 and after, Zerubbabel has come, and he has rebuilt a temple, and about a hundred years after Zerubbabel, another leader whose name was Nehemiah was a lay person, but he was a high person in the, in the, kings, in the Persian king's court. He was brokenhearted over what had happened in Jerusalem. He was brokenhearted over the destruction of the city, and he saw that the temple had been rebuilt, and now the people of the city were vulnerable from attacks from their enemies. So Nehemiah gets permission from the king to lead another team, a team of people to rebuild the wall that goes around the city so that the people now might be able to worship in freedom and they would have a sense of safety and security. Now, Nehemiah has this vision. You can read about it in his book. He has this vision, and it wasn't just about rebuilding a wall or a city's defense system. He wanted to revitalize a spiritual community. He wanted to build this because he wanted a healthy community there. Well, eventually the impossible happened. Nehemiah's vision was realized. The wall was finished. The people were protected. But the community wasn't the vibrant and prosperous community that that Nehemiah envisioned until a third man got involved. He was also a leader, and his name was Ezra, and some believe that he was as great as Moses. He was a scribe, he was an expert in the law, and, and, and when all was done, the people were back home, they were healing from their tragedies, Their temple was reestablished, their wall was built, and they were safe once again. There they were in the place of worship, and the people of God asked Ezra to do something remarkable. Nobody has ever asked me to do what the people had asked Ezra to do. They asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses, and they asked him to read the first five books of the Old Testament, which we call the Torah, and they wanted him to read it aloud to them. Most people could not read, so they just heard readings, and it took all day for Ezra to read. But when he started to read, they all stood up. This is the reason why we stand when we read the Word of God. When he began to read, they all stood up, and everyone listened, and everyone took into their bodies what was being read, because it was the first time ever that anybody had ever heard this before. And what was happening was this. A law was being established. And when they heard it for the first time, it was like the greatest gift they'd ever received. Now, this is a strange thing for us to imagine because, frankly, we don't like laws that much. 
We don't like, we grow up, we don't like it when our parents give us guidance or discipline. We don't like tax laws, policy manuals. We hate those. People build things without reading directions. We don't like codes of conducts or codes of conduct or dress codes or rule books. They fly in the face of our main cultural value here in the West, and that is rugged individualism. But not only that, we know stories of people who have manipulated laws or created laws that, that extend power to some and take power from others. So we don't, like, we don't like laws very much. But you need to know this is an ancient text, and the, the Israelites had a far different take on the law. They believed that they were God's people, and this was God's law. And they saw that God's law was just and protective. And so what they did was they took a copy of the law and they celebrated it. They started playing music and they would hold these huge festivals and they'd have, they'd have week-long parties that would, that would last for a week or more for days and days and days. And at the center of it was the reading of the law. Somebody would stand up and read the law. And then they would take the law and they would clutch it to their chests and they would dance with it like it was the Stanley Cup or, or it was like that glass football that everybody in Oklahoma wants, you know, that national championship trophy. They held the law like it was that precious. God, they said, had given it to them, and they saw it as a gift. This law demonstrated God's consistency and his love for them. It also demonstrated God's presence among them. And at Ezra's reading of the law, this new community, excuse me, Nehemiah's vision was established. It meant now that these people, for the first time, had real neighbors And they had friends, and they had family, and they could start businesses and have jobs. There was opportunity. It was like a new life. It was like when the law was read, there was a future. And not only that, it held sacred practices. It it told their most important stories. It wouldn't let them forget who they were or whose they were. No longer would their lives be directed by a tyrant. No longer would, would a dictator have power over them. They, they, were going to be, they were going to be ordered by law, a just law, a, a law that was established by a just and a merciful God. This, I think, is what Dr. King was talking about when he wrote to pastors from a Birmingham jail. As he wrote, he wrote on toilet paper, And he said these words, there are two types of laws. There are just laws and unjust laws. He said, I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law or natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. I read Dr. King's letter with conviction and celebration. I read it with conviction because I have benefited from the establishments of unjust laws. And I celebrate because God in God's goodness has used these sacred words of Dr. King to begin freeing me. 
And I understand why the people cheered. Just and right laws are freeing when you've lived year after year after year under an evil dictator that constantly reminds you, I am the law. And now at this reading, it's like, it's like somebody is declaring there is a new sheriff in town. And I, and I have a name. In fact, my name is Yahweh in the Hebrew, which means that I am that I am. I am the justice you've longed for. I am the protection you need. I am the conviction that will free you. I am the first and the last word. I am now the law, the authority. The law and the I am. The law and the I am and the law that the I am establishes is a gift. It's a real gift to us. In his book, Your God is Too Safe, Mark Buchanan talks about this little tiny space of land that sits between Uganda and Kenya in Africa. Now, as you leave Uganda, he says, you go through a little town called Busia, but once you, go get, once you get through Busia, you're not in Kenya anymore. Busia, he says, is a place of crossing. You, you, uh, you go through the Ugandan customs, you tip the guy with the machine gun waiting at the border, and you step out in the safe haven that is Uganda. But you do not find yourself in Kenya. He says Kenya is still another hundred or so yards away, and it's complete with its own border guard, and it's with his own machine gun, and he's standing there ready to be tipped as well. Now, maybe the guy will let you in. Maybe you won't. Maybe uh, you have the right amount of money. You, you might not. You might have the right papers, or you might not. Maybe he likes your face. Maybe he doesn't. And if you can't get into Kenya, there's a chance that you can't get back into Uganda because you've left. And now the guard has ultimate authority. He and he alone decides the fate of your life. And Buchanan asks, so where are you? Well, you're in this little space called Borderland. You can actually Google it. Borderland is no man's land. That's what it says on Google. It's a patch of ground between two safe havens. It is not claimed or defended by either country. All laws are suspended there. You could shoot a man, rob him, beat him. The guards on the other side, on each side, would watch solid and unmoving. Buchanan says, it's a strange place and frightening place. It's frightening to walk through borderland. There are no laws to restrain anyone from doing anything. And stranger still, the place is thronged with people. There are peddlers and hawkers and beggars. It's a carnival, carnival, he says, of the wayward and the waylaid. And until the gift of the law is established, the people had lived in a place like borderland. But the law, the very word of God, brings you out of no man's land and lands you in a place of security. It's like your home. And this is what the people felt. In 2019... We see ourselves in this story here in Nehemiah and Ezra today. We know that there are people who are in no man's land. Some very literally, we heard about that, some of us yesterday, during the common training that the Sparrow Project did for us. Some are waiting for security and want a home again and are longing for safety. 
Some, it's emotional. Some, it's, it's existential. Some, it's psychological. Some, it's spiritual. This is why we have candles lit across our room, because there are deep needs represented, and we long for a God to do something in our lives. We need to be reminded that God is actively working on our behalf. We need to be reminded that this God is the I am. And in Ezra's reading is a reminder of this truth. I am establishes boundaries for our security and our safety. And this is the story that we live into that brings us hope. I am the law is just and I am is the judgment that is merciful to us. And you know, this, this story is interesting because it's a story about a people who rebel against the I am and he keeps on loving them anyway. This God continues to keep bailing them out. This God never seems to give up on them. And so we gather and listen because this God hasn't given up on us either. Josh is a college student in a, in a, a New Testament class that I taught at Southern Nazarene University. He came to me one day and He's lived a pretty tough life, and the carpet had been jerked out from under him, and he was having a hard day, and he he said to me, God, the way you talk about God, God is overwhelmingly kind, and I just can't stand that about God. He said, I think you deserve your lot in life, but God is always trying to help you find a way out. I think Josh is exactly right. You know, this, this God seems to have a unique power in the universe. While other gods can be manipulated and controlled, they're insecure and can, it can even be a little bit emotionally unstable. This God is different. This God is marked by compassion and love. This God is absolutely consistent in bringing justice and, and establishing peace. This God is forgiving whenever it is requested. This God can create out of nothing and holds close those, those who are trying to survive as they reside under the belly of power and as they attempt to resist evil and the evil that confronts them. This God goes to get those that have intentionally walked away from him. And Nehemiah and Ezra remind us that I am is this creative. God is an artist. I am make something out of nothing. Make something good out of that which is bad. This God is slow to anger and is abounding in love. We learn as we hear the story that God seems to be a bit of a revolutionary. And just when we think we've got God pegged in that, we find that he's also prickly and dangerous, and wild, and even, even demanding. He, this God enjoys his freedom, and he takes pride in setting others free as well. The way that Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the rest of this book talk about it, he seems to be a romantic. Don't know if you know that. He calls himself a husband, writes letters to his wife, speaks about courting his bride, dating her, as the kids say, wooing her with his romance, because she, you, are his deepest love. But, but demonstrated in this intense love, in this tenderness and sacrifice, are the characteristics of a mother as well. 
Even the text says, as a mother confronts her child, so I, God, comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. She, God, seems to be forgiving, and she, God, seems to do it over and over again, and as many times as her children need it. Listen to what Isaiah says. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. This God, the one with the characteristics of father and mother, the best characteristics of father and mother, the one is the one that will hold these characteristics up so that the I am can be seen in strange places like bushes and fire and water and in clouds and on mountains and even in animals. I am is with the prisoner and the hungry and the sick and the addict and the lonely. And when we are in borderland, the I am that is the I am is with us too. This is the reason why the people celebrate This is why they gather, and Ezra reads the law out loud, but he makes sure to explain what it means so that everyone can understand. This, my friends, is the first time in history when the scriptures are read and then are translated in a way that people can understand. So he reads through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then they hear the story of this God who called Abraham who saved Isaac, who wrestled with Jacob. They heard how God saved a country through a jailbird named Joseph. They heard how this God delivered slaves through a murderer named Moses. And they heard that God gave them a future through a man named Joshua. They heard these stories. Their law was established for their good. The law was established for their protection. And above all, They were given this command, do not forget. My friends, do not forget about this God named I am. So you know what the people did? They started, they made a commitment to start telling stories of this God. To start talking about his character and his actions, the way that God showed up in in their lives. They told these stories around campfires and crockpots. They told these stories while they were needle-pointing and kneading dough. They told these stories as they were walking and waking and working. And when they told these stories, it was as if God, this freedom fighter, this revolutionary, this loving husband, this romantic, this protecting father, this gentle mother was in their midst all over again. And when Isaiah reads the law out loud, there is this murmur that goes through the crowd. And before long, people start talking. And within a few minutes, there is an uproar. And they chanted together, amen and amen, may this be so. They lifted their hands up in the air. They fell down in disbelief, and they worshiped God. It was like the stories that their their parents had been telling them about were lived out in real time. And we... So many years later, hang on to these precious ancient stories, and we value this same communal law. This is why we stand when we read it. This is why it is in the center of our worship, 
This is why we read it in our spare time and in regular practice. It is for the same reason that they read it. They needed to be reminded over and over and over again as you need to be reminded and I need to be reminded over and over again. No longer are you in no man's land. No longer are you in borderland. They are not in borderland and neither are we. We've been been given a gift. For those of us who have been in borderland, this is the story that reminds us that it is now possible to pass through the place of lawlessness into a new place of love and security and safety and care. It's a place where where there is authority and one who stands up and welcomes us and says, I am that I am. And just so you know, all four of the Gospels in the, Old Te- in the New Testament talk about this. Only they, they say it this way. The revealing of the I am isn't just in words or in nature, but the revealing of the I am actually comes in a person for you and for me. Matthew actually says that he is the one who is the fulfillment of that law. Mark believes that he is the very son of God. Luke claims that he is the evidence of salvation for everyone. And if you combine all of what those guys say, you have what John explicitly says. Jesus of Nazareth is the I am. The gospel of John reminds us that he says, I am the bread. I am the light, I am the shepherd, I am the vine. He says in the Gospel of John, before there was even Abraham, I am, you know this is a little literary chick. He says, I am the way, but he's not just the path. He is both the want to do and the how to be. He is the way of God, freedom and forgiveness. He says, I am the truth. His words and his love are true for you and they're true for me. He is the God whose person is the expression of real honesty and love and faithfulness, mercy, charity, generosity, forgiveness, and justice. He says, I am the life. He's He's the life provided for us when we ask him for it. He is both the present and he is the future. He is our healing and he is the hope that we need. And this, my friends, is why we cheer. This is why we celebrate. Because Jesus is the incarnation of the I am. He is the I am and is the can be. For those of us who need him, which is everyone. And our response to this goodness is just a simple willingness to participate. A willingness to trust in this one. And so, I just want to invite you. Just as the people there on that day began to celebrate, I invite you to celebrate even in your own heart by letting him be the I am for you. So these stories that, that, the, that we have here in Nehemiah and Ezra, these stories uh, that we read that were part of their day, shaped the people of the law, and uh, their law was rooted in these sacred stories. And as a result of these stories and this law, these people began to take on a certain kind of character. 
And in this, God used law and story to form them into a spiritual community. That's why we talk about story. That's why we talk about practices. But this is not just an ordinary community. This is an alternative community. It's a community like the world had never seen before. It's a community that began to love the stranger. It's a community that began to care for the orphan and the widow in their midst. It was a community that put God first. They honored this God. And they didn't didn't kill people that they were mad at or abuse their neighbor's neighbor's wife or take stuff that wasn't there. They edified one another and they focused on the good of their neighbor. And this story and these practices held them together through some pretty tough times. And when the times got the worst, you know what they would say to one another? Let us never forget. And this is what we do every single week. It is every week we are invited to the table of our Lord. And here at the table of our Lord, we are reminded and invited to trust in a simple sort of way. When we come to this table, and when we have people serve us, we are constantly being reminded of something new. The I am is our I am so that he can be for us. And we need him to be that. It's a constant reminder of a story and a bold statement and a new reality that Christ has died Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is why we say we must remember that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, took the, took, at dinner took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he reminded his friends who were sitting there with him, this is my body, it is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. This is a way to say, remember And it receive my goodness and my abundant generosity in your life. Feel free to live in this new way. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup of wine and he held it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant that comes in my blood and it has been poured out for you. And whenever you drink it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. So we remember And that is what we do with intention here when we come to this table. If you have not been to our church before, I want to invite you to this table. If you have been at our church before, I want to invite you to this table. But I want to let you know together that this is an open table. This is not a church of the Nazarene table. It is not an 8th Street church table. It is a church, it is a table that, that, is, uh, that is Jesus' table. And all who are open to, the, to this transforming work of Christ are welcome to this table, and you are welcome in this community. Everyone who is open to receive the grace that is offered, everyone who is willing to put your trust in this Christ is welcome to this table. Everyone who hears and responds to the I am as the I am becomes the one who can be for you is welcome to this table. It is at this table where we remember. It is also at this table where we live in attention, that we follow the one who has been a victim of this world but says to his friends, do not worry because I have overcome it. I want to let you know that our We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. I invite you to leave the, the left side of your row, come down the aisle, and I invite you to come down with your hands cupped to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. And I want to let you know that we do not receive communion here at the, excuse me, we do not take communion here at this church. We receive it because it is a gift, as is all things that come from God. 
So approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say. Then when you have heard what they've said, dip the bread into the cup and then eat it and be grateful. If for any reason you are unable to come down our aisle, uh, just, just wave at Allison here and she would be glad to come serve you. So as a matter of trust and as a matter of remembering and as a matter of practicing that we are now an alternative community because the I am has worked his way into our lives, I invite you to come.